Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Amen. Amen. Well, you can have a seat. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I am one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. And thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning here in person. Uh, If you are watching online, then we're glad you are here as well. Uh, This morning, we're continuing our series. Uh, I think this is week four of a six-week series on the Scripture. Uh, So the Scripture, a guide to understanding the Bible. Uh, And and here is, in part, why we are walking through uh, this series. Uh, Because we believe that the Scripture is vital, instrumental, foundational to our faith. Uh, But what I've found uh, in experience is a lot of people are confused about what the Bible is and how to use it. And so we thought this summer we'd take about six weeks and unpack what the Bible is and how we interact with it, read it, and apply it to our lives. So starting all the way back at week one, we defined what the Bible is, and this is what we said. Uh, to, for those of you who weren't here or maybe those of you who, who forgot, this is what we said. The Bible is a God-inspired collection of historical narratives, poems, law, prophecies, letters, wisdom literature, and apocalyptic literature to form a single unified story that points to Jesus. So really, for the past several weeks, we've just unpacked what that phrase means. Uh, And so we talked about the Bible as a collection of different sorts of genres. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today, Uh, how the Bible is a unified story. We talked about the storyline. If you want to go back and listen, uh, two weeks ago, that storyline connects. Uh, We talked about last week how the Bible has been preserved for us so that we can know it and interact with it. Uh, And all of it, the point is to lead to Jesus. Uh, The question that we're asking today is then, well, how do we read it? If the Bible is a collection of all of these different forms of literature, all inspired by God, all united in one story, and all of it points to Jesus, how do we read it on a daily basis? Uh, I am going to make a recommendation to you guys. It's a great book by Dan Kimball called How Not to Read the Bible. Uh, I would highly recommend it. In fact, what we're going to do today, it's a little different than what we normally do at Mercy Hill, is in this book, he gives four principles, and I'm going to give those four principles to you and unpack them together. And so if you have some more questions, Dan Kimball's book, How Not to Read the Bible, would be a great resource. And I want to be super clear, my outline today is straight from his book, all right? And so if you read it, you're like, Brandon stole this from the book. Yes, I did, right? It's right from the book, but it's a brilliant outline, and we're going to use it today. Why is this question, how do I read the Bible, important? I think one of the reasons that it's important is because we interact on social media on a constant basis. And on social media, what we find actually is a lot of people talking about the Bible. But if I could be honest with you, a lot of people not talking well about the Bible. Uh, And so if you've ever seen some internet memes on social media that people share, uh, maybe it's like, hey, Maybe you shouldn't talk so much about what God prohibits because he also prohibits eating shellfish. Or you've seen a meme that outlines that Christians don't say they believe the Bible, but they wear mixed fabrics. Uh, It's referring to a passage in Leviticus that says that the people aren't supposed to wear mixed fabrics. And so this morning, I am in violation of that law currently standing before you, right? Wearing a shirt that is a mixture of two different fabrics, 
And you think, what am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to understand it? And if you're a Christian, you might go, oh, maybe I don't know the Bible as well as I do, or I don't know how to interact with my friend. If you're not a Christian and you came this morning, maybe you're thinking like, yeah, that's right. So how do we understand or how do we read the Bible? Four principles today, and, uh, and we've covered some of these, but I'm going to unpack them even more. Here's number one. The Bible is a library, not a book. The Bible's a library, not a book. This is confusing for us at times because we have the Bible all bound, right, in a single book. But the reality is, that's not how the Bible was originally written. One single human writer uh, did not go away for three months on a beach retreat, become inspired by his or her surroundings, and write for us the Bible. Instead, the Bible is 66 books. It's a collection by 40 different authors, written over thousands of years, multiple different genres, and separated into two pretty distinct sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so when you interact with your Bible, you're not reading a book, you're reading a collection or a library of books. When you walk into the library, what's one of the things, one of the things that you notice besides the fact that it's very quiet, right? Sunday morning church, kind of quiet, library. Is it, it's, there's books? That's good. Thank you, Michael. A plus, five gold stars. But it's separated into sections, right? And so you don't go to the reference section to find the newest young adult fiction, right? And you don't go uh, into the law library at your college. I didn't go to the law library ever, right? Why? Because there's nothing there for me, right? It's just books full of legal codes and laws, and I don't want to interact with any of those things. That all of the things in, your, in our library, our public library, are separated in different sections, different genres, different types of literature. Guess what? The Bible is a collection of writings that are in all different types of genres, written for all different types of purposes. All the way back to week one, God-inspired collection, historical narratives, poems, law, prophecy, uh, wisdom literature, and apocalyptic literature, and we read all of those things differently. So let me give you an example then today, because you've heard me say this over the past couple of weeks. Here's the example. About half the Bible is written in this uh, genre called historical narrative, Means, meaning that it's a storytelling format that corresponds with events that actually happen, historical narrative. And historical narratives describe events, but you know what historical narratives don't do? They don't prescribe what you should do when they describe those particular events. Does that make sense? And so you wouldn't read someone's biography it's a historical narrative, facts that are true about their lives. And every single thing contained in the biography, you wouldn't go, oh, I have to emulate that if I want to be like that person. There's some things that you realize in that format that they're sharing that they don't want you to emulate. That they're sharing that are just what happened. They're not prescribing something for you to do. And so when we interact with historical narratives in the Bible, like the book of Genesis or Exodus, like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are events that are described but aren't necessarily prescribed. Does that make sense? 
Sometimes we read things there that actually happened in history, but those aren't examples necessarily for us to follow. And so one of the most important ones that we read in the Bible, which is a hot topic issue in our culture, is about marriage. And have you seen or heard somebody articulate, hey, I hear you saying this stuff about biblical or Christian marriage. What version of biblical marriage would you like me to believe? Because I have the Adam and Eve account where it seems to be one man, one woman joined together for life, but then... We read about Abraham, and he had multiple wives. And goodness gracious, we read about Solomon, and he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So tell me, what sort of biblical marriage would you like for me to believe in? Well, this again is a mistake of misreading historical narratives. Does that make sense? Just because The Bible tells you that Abraham had two wives doesn't mean that it is telling you to follow in his example of having two wives. It is describing what happened. Simply because Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, does not mean that it is prescribed or an instruction for you to emulate. And it doesn't mean that the Bible teaches Uh, multiple marriage, polygamy. It just means that's what happened. And in fact, if you read more of the story of Solomon, he is judged for that. Now, this is different than, say, teachings, like the teachings of Jesus. Not historical narrative, although they are described in historical narratives, but the teachings of Jesus that are written down, we have like the Sermon on the Mount. And so Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is instruction. He is prescribing for you a way of life. If you found in the scripture an example of someone who was not loving or praying for their enemies, described in a historical narrative, does that mean you don't have to do it? Or does that mean that Jesus has it wrong or that the Bible is full of errors? No. It means that we read different genres differently. Or you could take one of Jesus' teachings on marriage. Later on in the book of Matthew, when questioned about marriage and divorce, Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer one flesh or two, but one flesh What God is therefore joined together, let not man separate. Now, check this out. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus quotes from a historical narrative in Genesis and then teaches us the principle about it. He says, here's what you see in the beginning, the story. Here's what God said in the beginning, instruction. Now, here's what I'm telling you to do about it, Jesus's instruction. Now we can start building a case for marriage being one man and one woman for a lifetime apart from historical narratives that contain polygamy. We have a clear teaching. And we go, oh, this is the way that we start to understand the story, that Jesus is prescribing or teaching something, but those narratives are not. Does that make sense? All right. Another example would be Paul's letters, any of the letters in the New Testament. It's another genre. 
These letters are theology and instruction for local churches. That's what they are. And so the way that we should understand those letters is that they are theology and instruction for local churches like us. And so Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, when Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, he is giving us an instruction for the local church. This is how the local church, collections of believers should behave and interact with each other is without selfish ambition or conceit. Does that make sense, the way those different genres all work? And so it's important for us when we interact with the scripture, to read it in accordance with its genre. If we don't, we're going to make some massive mistakes. We might do things like take, for instance, uh, the story of David and Goliath, and not realizing that that is an historical a narrative describing what happened, think that that is a normative experience for all Christians, all believers. And so whenever you meet a giant, somewhere in your life, I don't know, like an offensive lineman, you know, for the Atlanta Falcons, and you make him very angry in some sort of social setting, and you have to be like, all right, I'm going to go get my five stones and God's going to deliver me, right? Because I read about it in the Bible. That's what the Bible says. That's not the way we're intended to read. Does that make sense? Not how it's designed. Everybody good? The other important thing under this point is we have to remember not only written in different genres, but in different times. Now think about that. The, the cultural setting for Exodus is not only radically different from our time, but it's radically different from Paul's letters. They're written in different times. And so when we read the Bible, we have to keep in mind not only when it happened in history, but also what we talked about last week, where it falls in the storyline. That where a passage falls in the storyline of Scripture helps us understand its meaning. And so we don't just cherry pick verses from the first five books of the Bible and throw them down on someone to prove that they're wrong. Instead, we understand those verses in the whole timeline of the Scripture, that there is a New Testament that Jesus came. And that's the way we start to put this story together. All right, we talked about that a ton last week. So here's the practical thing. When you read the Bible... You read and ask this question, what's the genre of the book? What is it? It's historical narrative? Is it poetry? Is it law? What is it? How should the literary style help me understand it? Is it describing something or prescribing something? Is it telling me what happened or is it telling me to do something? When is it in the history it's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. When is it in the storyline of redemptive history? We have to ask all of these questions if we want to properly understand the Bible the way it's put together. So the Bible's a library, not the book, not a book. Number two, the Bible is written for us, but not to us. And I just hurt your feelings if the entirety of your Christian experience is just on Instagram, where every Bible verse is exactly for you. The Bible's written for us, but not to us. Here's what I mean. We are not the original audience. Isaiah was written to a people in the nation of Judah who are in danger of exile. That's who it was written to. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are written to and by newly freed people who were formerly slaves in Egypt, now God's people living in God's land, and they don't know how to live God's way. That's who it was written to. And then to a second generation, and God was trying to say, don't be like your parents. The book of Mark is written to a new church in Rome that is, wants to know more about who Jesus is and how they can follow him. That's who Mark was written to. First and second Corinthians, written to a church in a place called Corinth who were a bunch of folks who had been saved out of pagan worship and were having trouble not importing their previous behavior and worship styles into their current lives. That's the original audience. There is no book in the Bible that is addressed to Mercy Hill Church in Marietta, Georgia. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at 287 Mount Calvary Road, Marietta, Georgia, 30064. There's not one. There's not one that's written to believers in Atlanta where Paul says something like, I've heard of your zeal for attending worship experiences your positive Christian radio stations and your church on every corner, but one thing I have against you is there's not one. There's not a Bible, a book of the Bible that is addressed to the United States of America. The United States is not a character in the Bible. There's no verse that says, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and return to being originalists with the U.S. Constitution. There's not. It's not there. And we make a mistake when we think the Bible was written to us. We are not the original audience of the scriptures, but there is good news. It is for us. And just like Dr. Sampler unpacked last week, for 2,000 years, people have given their lives and died to preserve the scripture for us, have gone to great lengths to make sure that you can read it in your own language. Because the church has believed throughout all of history that while it wasn't written to Mercy Hill Church as the original audience, that what is contained in those letters and historical narratives and law and prophecies is beneficial for Mercy Hill Church. That when rightly understood and applied, it is powerful for life change. Is a necessary guide for us in this day and time, and ultimately that in the scriptures we find the story of Jesus and how God wants to redeem a people for himself. That the scriptures, while not to us, tells us who they scriptures tell us who God is, what God requires of us, who we are designed to be, the heart of our problem and our brokenness is sin. The scripture tells us that God has a plan to redeem and save his people and tells us that that's through Jesus, his son. In the scriptures, we learn that Jesus' character, his teaching, his life and death and resurrection. We learn about the Holy Spirit that's sent by Jesus to convict us, to correct us, to lead us into saving faith, to guide us in our daily lives. We learn about this thing called the church, how it's organized, its aim and its purpose and its mission. It's all there. And so it is for us, but we're not the original audience. And as we read the scripture, we have to keep that in mind. 
or we get in trouble. Let me give you an example. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare. Uh, some uh, translations say to prosper you. Plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. Anybody seen this on a coffee mug? Youth group t-shirt, right? Makes you feel good, doesn't it? But remember, we're not the original audience. So let's ask the question, who is the original audience? The original audience was God's people who are being sent into exile and who would be in bondage in Babylon for 70 years. Now, do you think that fact changes the way we understand this verse? That it's not to us? Yes. It's not exactly about things are going to get better at work, right? And my, bo my boss has been writing me really hard, but Jeremiah 29, 11, God's got a plan for my good. Well, I, in two weeks, I'm going to have his job. It's going to be so much better, right? Or you're going to have to go in exile for 70 years. Does that make sense? The difference between the two ways that we read the Bible. We're going to come back to this verse. The other important distinction and why this is important if we don't understand that there was an intended original audience, we'll often import our current cultural implications or understandings into the text. Let me give you an example from not so long ago, 1963. Peter, Paul, and Mary write a children's song, Puff the Magic Dragon. Anybody ever heard that song? Well, shortly after they write it, what begins to happen? A total revolution in our society in the United States. Sexual revolution happens. Drug experimentation goes through the roof. And then what happens? Maybe if you've been around for a little, I've heard this rumor before. People started to say, oh, Puff the Magic Dragon by Peter, Paul, and Mary is really about marijuana. That's what it is, right? What happened? Culture changed. Someone's worldview changed. And all of a sudden, because that's the way they understand that phrase, puff, they think it must be about smoking marijuana. The problem with that is that Peter Yarrow, who wrote the song, some years later said this, when puff was written, I was too innocent to know about drugs. What kind of mean-spirited, I'll just edit this and say person, would write a children's song with a covert drug message? What happened? People ignored the original author and the original audience, which was for kids, and imported their own cultural understanding into it, and they misunderstood the song. Now, we do this all the time. In our current cultural context, here's what we do, though. We read a story, like, let's say, about David and Jonathan. And we see the emotional connection that they have and the love that they have for each other. And you know what conclusion we draw? Well, they must have had a homosexual relationship. What are we doing? We're importing our own cultural understanding into the text. Because we can't conceive in our current context of a loving emotional relationship between two people of the same sex that's not sexually active. That interpretation actually says more about us than it does the characters in the scripture. 
It says that we have a cultural presupposition that love and sex are always tied together. And we can't separate those things. The Bible is not written to us. We're not the original audience, but it is for us. And when we get that backwards, we will tend to make large mistakes because we will assume our culture on the scripture and we will assume that certain passages are directly for us in our current cultural situation and they're just not. That's number two. You guys taking notes? Good. Nobody's taking notes. Great. So when we read the scripture... It's not to us, but it is for us. We need to ask, what was the original audience? What was the occasion? Or why did this need to be written? What did this mean in their culture and time? Those are questions that we should ask. Number three, never read a Bible verse. This might be the first time in history a pastor at church has told you this. Never read a Bible verse. What do I mean? I mean, the scripture is contextual. We, we see this constantly, right? Where somebody pull out a soundbite from like a politician's speech and you'll get 15 seconds and you'll think they're saying one thing and all of Twitter goes totally insane. And then you'll go and listen to the entire speech and be like, oh, that's not what they said or that's not what they meant. It's the same thing with the scripture. We need context around it. I love Greg Kokel says this, if there was one bit of wisdom, one rule of thumb, one single skill that I could impart, one useful tip that I could leave that would serve you well for the rest of your life, what would it be? What is the single most practical skill I've ever learned as a Christian? Here it is. He says, never read a Bible verse. That's right. Never read a Bible verse. Instead, he says, always read a paragraph at least. Saying if you want to understand it, you can't constantly divorce scripture from its context. You wouldn't want someone to do that to you right? Show up with their iPhone, voice note, capture an hour-long conversation, and then cut out the 15 seconds that made you look terrible. And so we also shouldn't do that with the scripture. So let's try this. Let's go back to Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Remember the verse. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope in the future. Let's read the rest of the paragraph, starting at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Hold on. The Bible's not written to us, but for us. Who's this to? Who's the you here? People of Judah. That's right, right? On the verge of going in exile. God's people, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations and all the places that where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you in exile. If you just read the paragraph, what would you learn? Is written to God's people in the Old Testament times who were going into exile. The exile was going to be in Babylon, and it was going to be for 70 years. All we did was read a paragraph. Does that make sense? You didn't need a study Bible. You didn't need a commentary. You didn't need a master's of divinity from a seminary. What did we do? 
just read the paragraph. But what do we learn? God's going to keep his promises. The people we will turn, he's going to restore their fortunes. So let's put this together. If we read it out of context, what conclusions could we come to? Well, you're underpaid and you're overworked and you have a terrible boss. And you read this verse one day on the side of a coworker's coffee mug and you took a screenshot of it and you've saved it as the background of your phone. And you thought for the past three weeks, God has got me. God wants me to prosper. So you begin to believe that a new job is coming your way with better pay, better benefits, better hours, and better management. Why not? It's what the Bible says, right? And then what happens? Two months down the road, three months down the road, three years down the road, you're still in the same job and you think, what, God abandoned me. How dare he? Now let's read it in context. We learn from this passage that God has a plan for the people of Judah, plan to send them into exile, but they're going to come back. We see that God is for his people and their good. That even though this isn't an individualistic promise just for my life, we see something in the passage of the goodness of the character of God. After all, we can't read this as individualists because think about it. In 70 years, some of the people who were in exile died. They never got what prospering in a return. But, but we can see clearly that God allowed these hardships. And God is going to allow hardships in our lives as well. That we can trust God for our ultimate good, even if our circumstances don't change the way that we think they are going to change. Most importantly, we see in the passage that when we seek God, he wants to be found by people that we can have a relationship with him, even if my job situation doesn't change. One way of reading the Bible is American civil consumeristic trash. And the other way is the way the Bible's designed to be to point you to the character of God, his goodness, his love for you, and so that you and I will learn even if our circumstances don't change, even if I'm in exile for 70 years, I can trust that God has my good in mind. You see the two ways to read? So when we read the Bible, we read a verse, we read the paragraph, we ask this question, how does this fit into the context of this entire paragraph? We need to read the entire chapter. What's the argument in the chapter? What's the point? It would be good to know the book, who wrote it, who it was written to, what's the occasion. It'd be good to know how it fits in the storyline of scripture. Where does this fall? Genesis to Revelation. You guys got time for one more example? I want to do this one mainly because I hate the Florida Gators. You guys remember Tim Tebow years ago was on the cover of Sports Illustrated with Philippians 4.13? I black. Do you know what Philippians 4.13 says? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the internet went insane, Googling Philippians 4.13, right? Now, uh, by all accounts, I don't think Tim Tebow was trying to take this verse out of context. I hate to admit this as a Georgia fan, but Tim Tebow is pretty authentic in his faith, longs to follow Jesus, and is generally a good dude. I hate to admit it, 
But what happens when you take that verse out of context is you begin to believe some pretty wild stuff, or you can't. So let's do what we've learned. You ready? What's the genre? The book of Philippians. Anybody know? Who's it written to? The people of Philippi. It's a letter, right? An epistle written from Paul to a local church. When was it written? <laughs> yeah. First century. First century, right? During the rule of the Roman Empire, after Jesus' death and resurrection, after the Holy Spirit has come, after the founding of the church, right? Who's the audience? The church of Philippi. Paul's writing this from where? Anybody know? From prison. Should be our first clue. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Throw a football 60 yards, but I can't get out of jail? I don't know. So we read it in context. You ready? Verse 10. This is what Paul says to this church in Philippi. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. For I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the paragraph. So Paul's thankful for the Philippians because they're worried about him while he's in jail. He wants them to know that he's been through a lot, through suffering, but he's also had some good times. He's had plenty and also he's had nothing. But here's the thing, Paul's saying, but I found contentment. I'm not looking for more. I appreciate your concern, but I want to show you what it means to be content and what the Lord provides. So if you back up in the chapter, he's already told them, hey, you need to rejoice in the Lord. You need to be reasonable with all the people around you. Can you imagine a guy from prison saying, hey, you need to be reasonable? Like with a prison guard that beat you, be reasonable. And no, he wants them to know that in all of their experience, whenever they're suffering, when they experience worry or anxiety, God's going to supply them peace. If we zoom back to the book in chapter one, he says, again, I know you're concerned for me, but guess what? My prison stay has served to advance the gospel. And the whole prison guard has heard about Jesus. Not only that, but some of my brothers and sisters of the faith are so emboldened because I'm in prison. They're sharing the gospel everywhere. So let's put it all together. What, if, what, if, what did he just say? If you put some four, Philippians 4.13 on your eye black, it's magic. You're going to throw a football over them, their hills. You're going to run a 40-yard dash faster than Usain Bolt. No, man. He's saying, Jesus is the most important thing about me. And what I've learned with Jesus as the most important thing is I can get through anything. If I'm in jail or out of jail. And so I'm content because Jesus is good and the gospel is advancing. Those are two very different understandings of a passage, aren't they? All right, number four. You guys are getting tired. Here we go. Last one. All the Bible points to Jesus. We talked about this at length a couple weeks ago. Here's why this is important when it comes to reading the Bible. Unashamedly about this at Mercy Hill. When we say this, we believe this wholeheartedly. We read the Bible with Jesus at the center because that's the way Jesus read the Bible and that's the way the apostles read the Bible. That's what we do. 
Jesus says that in Luke 24, verse 27. He's talking to some disciples on the road to Emmaus. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the entirety of the Old Testament, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus says, if you want to understand the scriptures, guess what you need? You need me. It's what the apostles do. They're quoting from the Old Testament constantly in their New Testament writings, but they're putting a slightly different spin on it. Why? Because Jesus, because Jesus came and lived and died and was resurrected. And it is very important for us to understand the scripture through the lens that Jesus came, died on a cross and rose again. I don't want to go too far into this. Let me just say, um, I appreciate Andy Stanley. Our student minister, when we were student minister, was based off one of his books. He taught me how to contextualize. Uh, I appreciate, I don't know him personally, but I've read a ton of his stuff. I've benefited greatly. But several years ago, he set off a firestorm in a series of messages that he said called uh, Aftermath, in which he claimed this, that the New Testament apostles were unhitching the Christian faith from the Old Testament. Now, since then, he's kind of walked it back, but not really. I want to be as fair as I can. He's trying to clarify his position. He's not trying to get rid of the Old Testament, but that's what he said. That is wrong. You know why it's wrong? You don't even have to leave the passage that he was working through. James the apostle quotes the Old Testament in a way that shows Jesus as the point of the Old Testament. In Acts 15. Here's what the apostles are doing. The apostles are not teaching that we can unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. They are teaching that Jesus unlocks the Old Testament. That Jesus is the key to understanding the Old Testament. That the things that you read in the Old Testament don't make sense unless you read them from the lens of who Jesus is. I'm about to show my age. This is the best example I could come up with, though. In 1999, there was a cult movie that came out. It bombed out of the theaters and then exploded when it went to home video and DVD, Fight Club. Anybody remember Fight Club? It's a Gen X to the core movie, right? In Fight Club, two main characters. There's Edward Norton. He plays a man who hates his job and is suffering from insomnia. He meets and becomes friends with a character played by Brad Pitt. Pitt convinces him that his real problem is consumerism, and he needs to shake himself free by getting back to something visceral. And so they fight each other. And there's some sort of healing and cathartic process that happens for Edward Norton's character. So he and Brad Pitt start a club of men who hate their jobs and hate their wives, and they get together and they just fight each other. And it unlocks something inside of them. It's cathartic and healing. But then at the end of the movie, it takes a strange twist. You find out that Edward Norton is suffering from a dissociative personality disorder. And the entire time, Brad Pitt is not another person. Brad Pitt is a figment of his imagination, a character that Edward Norton has created. And the entire movie is about this sort of mental collapse of Edward Norton. And that single development changes the entire thing. So if you watch Fight Club, by the way, I'm not recommending it. It is brutal and violent and the language is terrible. All right, I just want to like, you know, I watched it before I was a pastor. 
But if you watch it a second time, the experience is completely different, right? Because you know Brad Pitt's not real. And you start to pick up on things. Like he'll blip on the screen occasionally. Or he'll be in the background of certain scenes. Or he doesn't pay for his bus ticket. He just walks right on. But Edward Norton has to pay. And you start to put together, wow, this is a totally different experience. Because I know the end. That's how we understand the scriptures. We know the end. And we can't forget that Jesus died and rose from the dead when we read the rest of the scriptures. And what it does is it unlocks, the, it's the key that unlocks our understanding to everything else. And so in every passage, we go, what does this tell me about Jesus? Some people will say Jesus is on every page. That's hyperbole, right? Doesn't mean that you go search on every page for Jesus' name. What it means is the fingerprints of God's plan to redeem his people through the person of Jesus is all the way through the scripture. So when we read the Bible, we read, remembering, it's a collection, it's a library, not a single book. We read, remembering, it's not to us, although it is for us. We read, uh, remembering, uh, that the, never to read a Bible verse, we gotta read it in context. We read remembering that it all points to Jesus. Well, what about mixed fabrics? Read the rest of Leviticus. Here's what you find. The tabernacle curtains were made from mixed fabrics, and the priest wore mixed fabrics. So a little bit of context helps you understand the command. How violated would you feel if a police officer came to your door wearing, the, wearing a police uniform, but it wasn't actually a police officer? Right? Wouldn't you feel violated? We don't wear police uniforms around. It's wrong. In Leviticus, the people were not supposed to wear mixed fabrics. Why? So they wouldn't be confused for a priest. Can you imagine wearing mixed fabrics? As you thought it was a priest and he came up and confessed your sins, asked him to pray for you, and then he found out later that's just Joe Schmo down the road that likes mixed fabrics? It's a pretty big violation, right? What did we need to understand it? A little bit of context, maybe a study Bible, right? You can do it, but we have to read it that way. Four rules. You got it? Cool. Let me pray for us. Father. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.